And welcome. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, our wonderful and very appreciated community radio partners, as well as our slightly more appreciated podcast listeners who can be added to. You can add yourself to that slightly more appreciated crowd of people at greenmajority.ca, where you can get all sorts of interesting content, most of it written by Dave, clever pictures, sassy jokes, all the entertaining things. <laughs> See, know. you laugh. I don't know what to tell you. Proof of concept. You. You're, you're constantly... Uh overselling what's on the website. <laughs> but, uh, it's good. It's That's good. our motto here. Oversell and underdeliver. Uh, so uh, I don't want to take any time away from Lauren. Lauren, our, our Green Majority correspondent, is here and on the phone. I'm going to put her on there. But I just want to note as well that our we have our uh, reigning champion has returned to us once again. May or may not chime in during this interview. We'll see. We would love him to. But uh, Tim Nash is here, the sustainable economist. And we're going to be doing another deep dive into the uh, Green Report, talking about 10 trillion dollars. I hope I didn't uh, steal the lead there, uh, but $10 trillion being invested in global green investments. We're going to be talking to him about that specifically in a few minutes, but first, here's Lauren. Hello, Lauren. Hi, everybody. So we're going to start with uh, some Trans Mountain stuff. I sort of have it in two groups, so we'll do the first section of Trans Mountain, maybe do a couple of comments, then I have this other, this other Trans Mountain stuff that you sent me. So first we have the federal government uh, is expected to make a decision any day now on how and whether to proceed with the Trans Mountain Expansion Pipeline meant to bring Canadian crude to world markets. The government opted to purchase the pipeline for $4.5 billion after previous owners Kinder Morgan threatened to drop the project, citing legal uncertainty. The pipeline has faced a lot of opposition from environmentalists and, and indigenous groups and has also inspired pro-pipeline demonstrations. Now, with a decision on the pipeline expected in the coming days, groups on both sides are trying to make their voices heard. Tuesday of this week, on May 11th, pro-pipeline demonstrators greeted attendees to the Global Petroleum Show in Calgary, which was partnered with the group called Canada Action that organized the demonstration. Both pro-pipeline and anti-pipeline activists are of the opinion that they are defending their economy and local workers. The former believe that we need to continue doubling down on oil to keep high-paying blue-collar jobs around and to fuel our economy, whereas the latter point out that our economy is dependent upon the ecosystems that the oil sector is threatening, and besides, oil industry executives have been trying to slash the number of workers they need to hire through automation for years. In addition, green energy investment has the potential to be better for our economy than the increasingly precarious oil industry. But conservative politicians like Alberta Premier Jason Kenney, a man who never finished his undergraduate philosophy degree, and Ontario Premier Doug Ford continue to spout out rhetoric about being open for business while being against environmental action. Jason Kenney, a man who has compared pro-choice advocates to pedophiles and Satanists, gave a speech this week at the Global Petroleum Show, touting all the innovative environmental R&D that his darling oil industry is up to. But before he could take the stage, a protester stole the podium and called the show a cesspool of hypocrisy for talking about sustainability in connection with the oil sands, and was then quickly forcefully removed from the platform. As he was being dragged away by three armed police officers, he could be heard calmly saying, I'm sorry to do this, my friends, but we all live on this planet. Quit lying to yourselves. Premier Kenny then began uh, his speech in which he proclaimed that global demand for oil and gas would grow through 2040. He also praised the culture of constant innovation in the Albertan oil sector that has shrunk its environmental, the environmental footprint of its crude, vowed to restore investor confidence in Albertan oil, and claimed that the Albertan oil, uh, carbon tax that he cancelled was a dead weight on their economy that did nothing to curb emissions. 
He then claimed that environmental improvement is happening constantly in the Alberta energy industry through research and development. He also implored the feds to accept conservative, conservative amendments to Bill C-69, some of which would have let the Impact Assessment Agency, tasked with uh, overseeing new projects, ignore Indigenous rights as well as climate change. Alberta has recently spent $2.75 million on an ad campaign promoting the Trans Mountain expansion across the country. Lauren, do you have any thoughts on this before we go to the other side? Uh, just that, um, uh, one thing, those buses look super dumb. I've seen them around Ottawa for the last couple of weeks, and it's terrible design. Anyway, um, <sighs> but uh, just that, and, and I know this isn't anything new to listeners, but I, I truly don't think Trudeau has anything to win by, by approving the pipeline, which is what we're almost certain he's going to do this week. Um, he's already lost Alberta. Well, he never had Alberta. As a, as a voting block, as a block of support for himself. Um, Kenny and Shear have done too good a job catering to that, uh, to that demographic um, and have gotten too far out ahead um, when it comes to the we support jobs and small businesses discourse. So there, there's no way he's going to win that province. So the way I see it, he has, he has nothing to win by, by approving this pipeline. Um, I'm, sure, I'm sure pollsters and, and, his, and his, I don't know, his consultants would say otherwise, but that's sort of what I see at this point. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> yeah, if I, I, I just I was gonna find a space for this comment, and I'll stick it here so that I can now just be quiet and go away uh, for a little while. <laughs> but it was just so I've been I've been chiming in on on me reading. Uh, I I don't waste a ton of my time interacting with it. Usually, I'm just having fun with them. But you know, I do keep an eye on a lot of our Facebook posts, and I have to tell you that uh, you know, quantitatively speaking, um, you can go and check it yourself. The four out of five of negative comments on the post. Uh, are summed up with people who are actively denying that climate change is real. Now, why is that important? Well, it's important for two reasons. One is that it demonstrates the success of the right-wing parties in this country, regardless of what level, uh, to sell the idea that, well, technically climate change is real, but we shouldn't do anything about it, and their listeners hear climate change is fake. And the reason I know that, or the reason I have a strong belief about that, this is the last thing I'll say, uh, is that every single time on when I see those comments, I do comment. I said, interesting. Can you please explain to me what your opinion is? And I, I don't say it super sarcastically. They may read it that way, but that's not how I say it. <laughs> uh, but can you explain to me how, uh, if that is the case, if climate change is a myth, why does the head of every oil company on earth say that it isn't? And and you, can you just explain that? Like, maybe there's an answer. Can you explain it? Not once has anyone even attempted to respond to that question. And I don't say that as in like, haha, look at me, get it, you know, sticking it to people on the internet. This is an important point we need to drill on during the election. These people aren't aware that oil companies admit this is real. Indeed. Um, so activists against the Trans Mountain expansion, meanwhile, have on their side, uh, as you mentioned, the science of anthropogenic climate change, but also they believe the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Teenage climate activists who have been taking part in growing countrywide walkout demonstrations against climate inaction sent a letter this past Monday, the 10th of June, threatening legal action if the government does not recognize that the Trans Mountain Expansion Project violates sections 7 and 15 of the Charter. They argue that uh, the Government of Canada has a constitutional obligation to consider the climate impacts of Trans Mountain, as well as its violations of the Charter, especially since the government purchased the pipeline in the spring of 2018. Section 7 of the Charter reads, quote, Everyone has the right to life, liberty, and security of the person, and the right not to be deprived thereof, except in accordance with the principles of fundamental justice. 
Section, section 15 of the Charter reads, quote, Every individual is equal before and under the law without discrimination, and in particular without discrimination based on race, national or ethnic origin, color, religion, sex, age, or mental or physical disability. The legal argument is therefore that an approval of the Transmountain expansion with its, with its associated emissions would represent a knowing attack by the Canadian government against the life, liberty, and security of its own citizens, and that it is directly discriminatory against young people. The letter submitted to the federal government by Lawyers for the Youth comes with several appendices, including statements from the youth and a letter by Dr. James Hansen. I will now quote a few passages from these statements. I have seven in total. So. 18-year-old Olivier Adkinkaya of Edmonton writes, quote, We are from the beginning taught the importance of our education and academic abilities and encouraged to study hard, perhaps to finally begin our post-secondary education as we enter adulthood. We are guided through 12 or more years of schooling so we can decide what role in society is best for us. Assuming that the reader is of an older generation than my own, I ask, what were you most worried about when you attended school? If anything, especially in the years, the final years of our schooling, the education system evokes in us a concern for our career-defining decisions. Naturally, at this point in time, our primary concern is what career path we wish to follow. But when we learn that an irreversible catastrophic change looms on the horizon and that we have a window of just 11 years to have global greenhouse gas emissions or face life in an uninhabitable world, how could we possibly care about whether or not we want to be an engineer or a musician or doctor? These are insignificant decisions that are now sinking in the cesspool that is the climate crisis. 17-year-old Lena Andres of Winnipeg writes, quote, I feel immense anxiety and pressure to be extremely focused on my individual actions that may hurt the planet in any way, shape, or form. On my worst days, I have a hard time getting out of bed. The constant stress of the very real possibility that the world as we know it may only have a decade left to survive. The anger that I feel towards the leaders that are supposed to protect the people of this beautiful country is nagging in the back of my brain at all times, often leaving me feeling deflated, angry, and upset. The stress that I feel because of the inaction of our government shouldn't be my stress to harbor. I feel morally obligated to do everything I can to protect this land, the air of which gives us life. It is not my sole responsibility to try and save the planet, but that is what it feels like thanks to the constant anxiety and pressure that the threat of climate change places on me and thousands of students like me. The 13-year-old Alexis Benz writes, quote, I fear for my children because they, want, they will arrive into this world with high hopes, only to have them crushed by ignorant politicians who didn't act when they needed to. Instead of worrying about the economy, we should be worrying about our lives and truly think about what is at stake. The money spent on the Transmountain Expansion Pipeline should be spent on renewable energy rather than oil. The Earth is changing faster than anyone can imagine, and Canada is warming twice as fast compared to the global rate. 16-year-old Emma-Jane Burian of Victoria, B.C. writes, quote, I don't want to have to organize a strike every month, but I have to because there's not enough action. There's a massive security threat on my future and the government is not taking it seriously. Millions of young people like me and generations yet to come, uh, the government's actions are telling millions of people like me and generations to come that we don't matter. The short-term economic return is more important than our lives. How can I feel remotely safe, secure, or feel that I have liberty when my life is at risk? How can I explain to my children that my government did nothing? If we don't put into action the solutions we have, then what are we teaching our children and what kind of world are we handing to them? 19-year-old Christina McCarville of London, Ontario writes, quote, I realized that to the people who had power over my life, my future was not as important as profit or even the idea of profit. I felt scared. I felt trapped and as if all my dreams were washed away and were impossible the exact moment I realized this. 
I was forced to grow up because I was forced to think about the fact that I may not have a future, that my dream of seeing the land in its full natural beauty may not come true. Thoughts about my own inevitable mortality caused me panic attacks and left me with a huge amount of restless nights. I had anxiety attacks and broke out in hives many times. The government has openly recognized the issue of climate change. But with opposite actions such as the Trans Mountain Pipeline, the recognitions of a climate emergency are a slap in the face. I have two more that I could go to, but I think I'm going to turn to Lauren before I uh, go to those in case you have, uh, in case you have thoughts that will uh, render these, these quotes obsolete. Um, no, nothing that would render them obsolete. I, I think it's important that we hear what those, um, what those young people have to say. Um, I think this is just a really, really exciting sort of, uh, not turn of events, uh, nothing's necessarily <laughs> changed, but um, anyway. I think this is really, really cool that this is happening, and these young people are being are being supported by these by these pro bono um, lawyers. This way, uh, it sort of it doesn't ride on the coattails, but it, it sort of comes alongside the uh, the Juliana case finally getting to court in the states, and um, and in Quebec, the um, I'm going to butcher this. I I was terrible at French in high school, but um, all, uh, an environment jeunesse uh, case coming out of the states as well, where um, although they're they're unique, um, they're arguing quite similar things, which is which is that. Um, sort of further oil and gas development is depriving these young people of, of their futures and of, and of their livelihood. Um, and, and I think this is, in, in, in terms of like sort of an activist tactic, I think these lawsuits are, are really fascinating um, because they have the potential to, to, should they win at a Supreme Court level, really set a precedent um, and, and limit the oil and gas industry going forward. So I think these are really, really brave young people um, and we should be really proud of them and supporting them however we can and um, and also supporting those lawyers and letting them know that that pro bono work is acknowledged and appreciated and that and that people value their time as well uh, so this is this is really cool to see yeah I when I was reading these I found myself wondering uh, who exactly will be reading these uh, letters in their totality if if who in the government will be doing it and if and if Trudeau would ever even take a look at these things uh, and that's the thing. He he very well might not. It's it'll it'll probably end up just being a staffer. He might read a couple of them and and maybe even send them letters back that he that he signed personally. But um, but I, I think I think the really interesting here the the interesting part here is 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 that threat of lawsuit that comes along with these letters uh, because if that's followed through on, like I said, that has the potential to be really really powerful. Hmm. All right, so I'm going to read the final two uh, 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 passages that I had here. 18-year-old Nina Tran of Hamilton, Ontario, writes, quote, The first global strike of 2019 brought 150,000 Canadian youth on the streets of Montreal. On the same day, March 15th, eight, 84 other climate strikes occurred across Canada. May 3rd brought 98 strikes. May 24th brought 104 strikes. We are growing and we demand radical change. Atop all this is the mental bearing that climate change brings. Not a day goes by where I am not in panic. A UN press release states that we have 11 years to prevent irreversible damage from climate change. When action must occur now to save our future, I wonder if post-secondary education is worth the trouble. I wonder if life is still worth living if we must watch our future burn before our eyes. I fear for my future beyond the age of 29 and for the future of those still alive. In 11 years, the ramifications will be magnified. I have dropped my courses to work and act. I am not alone. And finally, 13-year-old Rebecca Wolfgage of Victoria, B.C. writes, quote, Because of climate change, I am scared for the future and the fact that my government is doing so little to save it. Harper's climate goals weren't anywhere close to enough, and since you, Trudeau, are not even meeting his minimal climate targets, yours aren't either. 
We need to act now because our government doesn't actually care if we have a good life. They just care about their money. I am having uh, trouble with my page here. She ends, adults seem to want kids who are worried about climate change to do educational projects, projects that talk about basic easy stuff on climate change, turning off our lights and bicycling. But by themselves, those accomplish nothing. We need a government to take urgent action recognizing the climate emergency, end quote. And uh, as we wrap up this segment, Lauren, I wonder if you have any final thoughts on, on these at all. Um, just that I think I would encourage uh, young people who are out there taking ass and taking names. Oh, hope I can, hope I can say <laughs> that on radio. Um, and, and I think uh, older folks listening um, would do well to, to try and find ways we can support them. Um, I mean, in addition to these young people who are, who are releasing letters like this and, and threatening lawsuits, and then, and then the young people who are engaging in, in climate strikes on Fridays, uh, we know there are really big ones coming up in September. And, and I think I, whether you're a parent or you have a young person in your life or potentially you're an educator um, who's, who's listening, we need to figure out ways to help those young people get out to those rallies and get out to those protests and connect with other young people like them. Um, because I, I know I've occasionally heard sort of things out of the media or out of politicians saying, oh, we shouldn't be sort of talking to kids about climate change. It's, it's stressing them out. Look, it's, 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 it's making them depressed. And it's like, well, well, no, it's not that climate change is making them depressed. It's that a lack of action is making them depressed. And one of the best ways we can fight that sort of climate despair and climate grief um, especially in young people, but not, but not only in young people, is by, is by empowering them to take action in their communities. So if, if, we, if we're expressing concern for these young people and, and we care about them, then, then we need to be out there supporting them however we can, and that's with our time and our money and our resources and, and maybe the occasional drive down to Queen's Park in Toronto's case or, or Parliament Hills in Ottawa. Mm, Truze, thank you very much. Lauren Latour, uh, again. So now we will turn to Saren for our first music break. Yes, and funnily enough, uh, the um, one of my favorite comments from last week's show post on Facebook, speaking of which, was someone saying that we were being irresponsible because we were upsetting people. And in my, <laughs> I didn't post it because I didn't think it was necessary, but in my head, I went good. <laughs> that means it's we're we're doing something. Uh, you should be upset. Things aren't okay. Uh, we're going to be right back because momentarily things are going to be okay just for a moment because we're going to be listening to James Wyatt Crosby talk about sing about rather. Lemonade. I don't know the song. Dave thinks it's good. <laughs> Here we go. The Green Majority is entirely listener-supported. Our goal to reach minimum solvency is to raise $300 a month. If you enjoy the show please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com for as little as $1. Uh, Dave, that was really nice. My buddy James Wyatt Crosby. There you go. Well, you know what? That felt really summery, and I'm very nearly about to say happy Pride. Happy Pride month. Mm. Um, Mm. That felt, I mean, you know, that just, it felt a little lighthearted, shall we say. I don't, you know, you know, I'm getting (laughs) nuts, you know? I'm into it. It just, you know, it just felt very carefree. Um, So there's me doing a little bit of a lisp, you saw. All right. Um, So moving on, Tim Nash. First of all, uh, my first big hitting question for you, uh, the sustainable economist. um, What do you what is your regimen? How do you go about being the reigning champion of most ever visits? More specifically, how is it you're not tired of us just yet, Tim? I'll never be tired. (laughs) I love this show. 
Um, well, it's a great opportunity to um, like rephrase some of the perhaps ill-phrased things that I occasionally say because <laughs> I'm rarely super wrong, but I occasionally misspeak. Is that fair? Uh, sure. Yeah. I mean, nobody's perfect. There you go. That's see, that's why we like you, Tim, because you're just so kind. All right. Let's get down to uh, shall we say the brass tacks. Um, the most uh, recent uh, edition of the Green uh, Transition Scoreboard has been uh, released. Uh, this report yep. has been done annually or semi-annually? Annually. Uh, annually, yeah. Annually. We've been doing it every, every year for, I think, about nine years, almost ten. Yep. And uh, uh, other significant contributors are, of course, uh, Hazel Henderson and Larray Long. Yeah. Um, they are also significant uh, contributors to these reports. Uh, it seems like you're the, the face of it, though, often. Well, I'm the numbers guy. You're so the Hazel, okay. Hazel is the face of it. She's Hazel Henderson is an absolute legend in this field. Uh, she's been a mentor of mine for quite a long time, and uh, she's she's just been at. I mean, she wrote a book in 1981 called "The Pol- Politics of the Solar Age," about the need to shift from a fossil fuel economy to a renewable energy economy. So she's just she's been at this for longer than I've been alive, and and really the goal here is twofold. Number one, I'm the numbers guy to say, okay, how are we doing? What is the realistic assessment of cash flowing into green sectors. And then it's Hazel's job as a futurist to then be able to take the numbers and where we are right now to start to think about what are the the, the, the key trends, the key points, and what does that sort of future sustainable society look like? And she's always been really ahead of the curve in terms of identifying the technologies that are really going to be game changers. So while everyone, you know, right now is talking about things like uh, uh, electric cars or, you know, sort of uh, 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 solar panels, which, you know, the technology has been around for a long time. uh, She's really focused on things like sustainable agriculture and uh, these plants called halophytes, which are edible plants that grow in salt water. So, you know, dealing with a lot of these water issues that climate change comes up, up with, she's able to project to, to say that, you know, this is sort of potentially the next big thing, that if we can grow plants in seawater, all of a sudden that's going to transform sort of the agricultural system. So, you know, and, and, and there's no telling when that's going to happen, but we make a really nice tag team because I'm very much grounded in, in sort of the present, in the numbers, in those facts to say, okay, how much money has actually been invested in these sectors? And then she's more of, of the dreamer and the visionary to, to sort of paint that picture of where we are headed as a society. And so right off the top, uh, one of, of that combination of the numbers and the sort of more futurism as, or future analysis, uh, yeah. futurism sounds too hokey to me. She's a futurist. Uh, I mean, a futurist <laughs> is the term. There that's you what go. People, it but just, but it's, she's very it. not hokey. There, there is some yeah. hokiness oh, that can goodness. be associated with well, that term, and, and the this is not notes, the appropriate use. Footnotes yeah. in our report are <laughs> extensive. People. All right. So, getting into that, so you're uh, as you identified, self-identified here, the numbers guy. Let's talk about some of the big numbers right yeah. off the top. So, uh, our big number this year, I remember, I believe, I don't know if it was the first year we ever had you on, but uh, a number of years ago, but you'll cl- fill in the details yeah. here. We were talking about two trillion. We're now right. talking about over ten. That's right. Uh, just comment wow. on the time span and yeah. the transition okay. because those are all super huge numbers. Yes. Like, what does that mean? Yeah. And I have a really hard time communicating to people like what a trillion dollars is. <laughs> you know, like it's basically it's nine zero. So like a million million. Right. If it goes like million and then billion and then trillion. It's one of these things. It's really hard. I've tried uh, so many different ways and it just never seems to land. But it's a really big number. Uh, I want to communicate that this is a cumulative figure. So it's an aggregate. 
So the number has gotten bigger every year. The first year we did it, it was just over a trillion. That was a really big deal that we found more than a trillion dollars. Uh, from there, that number has grown every single year. As well, our, uh, our, our definition of sort of green sectors has also expanded. So, I mean, I remember the year where, you know, we first included investments in water, understanding that there is this real connection between energy and life and water. And so we included investments in water infrastructure. This year, one of the big things we're, we're adding is uh, plant-based foods. So Beyond Meat has had a, an incredible run. The stock, they had an IPO, an initial public offering, where they went on the stock market for the first time. And the, the stock like tripled like right away and has now like just gone up. I saw just in the last couple of days, Tim Hortons announced that they're going to have Beyond Meat uh, breakfast sandwiches. Wow. And so that was like a big thing. And again, a trend that like this is something that people want and are really excited about. Mm -hmm. And the stock has just kind of shot through the roof. So, you know, the, the definition is always expanding. Uh, what I'm seeing is, is definitely continued growth within each of these sectors. So when we look at now, renewable energy has been a little bit flat over the last couple of years. But when we look at things like uh, green buildings, certainly water infrastructure, uh, a lot of the new financial mechanisms and, and the innovative stuff, we're seeing growth rates that are so much higher than a lot of the traditional energy sector. So when we look at, you know, and, and Jason Kenny and they've got the, the, the predictions in terms of fossil fuel growth, you're still like, the, those numbers are just so big that, you know, you, you'd be lucky to get sort of 3% growth annually on that. Whereas when it comes to a lot of these green sectors, there's so much room for growth that you can get 8%, 12%, 25% growth in some cases for, for the younger sectors. So, you know, really, really exciting to see the numbers kind of continue to evolve in terms of widening that scope of green sectors, but also really seeing a quicker financial growth than a lot of the traditional status quo sectors. So, uh, Tim, there was there was sort of when I was just skimming through the executive summary here, there were two big takeaways on the renewable energy component, um, and I'll just I'll fire them off here Please. one at a time, uh, and then we'll just do it, and then we'll uh, we'll talk about it. The the first one is just that is just the line item at the bottom here, which is that despite you saying it's flat, renewable energy makes up about half of that ten trillion dollars. That's right. Um, so, th I mean that's point one. Yeah. Uh, point two is I or question two uh, on observation two <laughs> uh, was just the fact that the, what we're seeing a lot of this investment from are these big players that are not in any or if anything climate agnostic or they they yeah. want to be seen as climate agnostic maybe that's a better way of saying it JP, JP Morgan Chase big banks HSBC yeah um, so the other point on that, I'll just shoehorn in and then you can sort of make a meta comment if you will like, is that during that you're talking about the, the renewable energy investment somewhat plateauing. I don't know. Maybe that was maybe, no, maybe well, not the word you use or slowing down. Mm, I mean, so it's true. So, OK, renewable energy is still by far and away the largest green sector. So you're absolutely right in terms of the numbers. It's still the biggest. Um, what's interesting is I think it's the easiest to wrap your head around right? To make investments, put up solar panels, put up wind turbines. We get it now, right? So it's a very uh, a straightforward business model. When I look at the return on investments, there's actually more money, higher returns to be made through uh, energy efficiency, mm -hmm. right? What we often talk about is the cheapest sort of megawatt of renewable electricity is actually a megawatt. It's reducing that megawatt of consumption is always going to be cheaper than generating a new one. The other thing is that the price of renewables is falling dramatically. So solar panels are getting cheaper. Wind turbines, not 
as cheaper as, as, as solar, but still getting cheaper. Batteries and storage, we're seeing that come down really, really quickly. So even though the, the numbers, the, the, the dollar numbers have been sort of even, I wouldn't say they've plateaued, but they've kind of leveled off. Mm. Uh, what we're seeing when you look at that in terms of generation and kilowatt hours, megawatt hours of generation, it's still growing quite rapidly. It's just that things are getting so much cheaper that we get so much more bang for right. our buck that we don't need as many bucks. It's, it's, well, it's also the diminishing returns, right? There's, there's, well, no, to some degree, not the diminishing returns of the, the, but the diminishing returns of like the the rapidity with which this can take up. Once there, there's only you know there you you need space. You need a you need someone who is going to buy that solar factory, right? Sure. So there's there's an amount of slowdown that can happen for non for sort of non financial that have nothing to do with financial um, confidence in that sector. Well, do, like what I factors. would say is that a big part of it still, and it's becoming less so, but it still is, I think psychologically dependent, not financially dependent, but psychologically dependent on government action. So when we see people like Trump and when we see, you know, in Brazil and when we see a lot of these governments come in that we know are, are going to be unsupportive, then obviously the, the, the investment confidence is going to taper back a little bit. Um, again, it hasn't, it hasn't stopped but I would argue that that sort of slowed it down. Mm -hmm. But there is still so much room to grow. Like, I don't think we're near the point of hitting those diminishing returns. Um, it's just that now I think people are forced to get a little more creative. Mm -hmm. So I'm seeing here in Ontario with our system, no longer do we have the feed-in tariff systems, right? But we have this funny thing, this global adjustment charge. And that makes investments in energy storage extremely profitable here in Ontario right now. So there is still, because of a lot of the uncertainty around policies, you know, I think that that's sort of hurt the investor confidence. I want to be clear, it hasn't gone down. Mm -hmm. I think it's just sort of leveled off. Yeah. Is that fair? Yeah, no, that's, that's I think that's more what I was getting at. And, and really, the point I was trying to make there was that this that we've had this uh, despite the fact that there's been such policy yeah. instability. That's right. Like, you know, one week we're right. over the last several years, we've been talking about billions of investment and then yeah. we're killing all these programs. And despite that, it's still billions it's still of investment. been billions and, that's right. and slowly creeping up. That's right. If anything, that effect may have had a bit of a cooling effect, but it didn't stop it and it didn't slow it down that's in, right. in the overall sense. And, and again, when it comes, we've now hit those tipping points such that it is economically viable on its own, mm -hmm. such that a regressive policy or politician can slow it down, they're not going to stop it. Like, let's be honest, coal's not coming back. I don't care what Trump says. Right. right? And then and my argument is that, you know, political pendulums swing. And, you know, and I don't want to take polls too seriously. And obviously, the last thing I want to do is forecast political outcomes. But Trump is not looking very good right now. And what I will say is that the, the progressive parties, including the, the Democrats in the U.S., are now have to embrace uh, climate change as a big threat. We're hearing a lot of talk around the Green New Deal. Mm -hmm. uh, here in Canada, you know, the, the, the climate change policy put forward by the NDP, I was very pleasantly surprised. The Green parties was fantastic. But like, these are, you know, parties where in the last election, they didn't really have to talk about these issues too much. Right. And now all of a sudden, it's, it's absolutely front and center as, as a core economic issue, let alone an election issue. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm really encouraged that I will just talk about the big banks for a moment. And again, 
And, you know, J.P. Morgan, they're not doing this for ethical reasons. Sure, they might be trying to squeeze out the sort of PR juice as much as they can to try to get that rosy little glow by, by counting the numbers. But let's be real here. This is absolutely them hedging their bets where they have so much invested in the traditional fossil fuel industry. They're starting to see the tide change and they want to make sure that, that they're going to be able to stay afloat in that scenario. This is me. This is me demonstrating my humiliating lack of, of financial knowledge. Um, but is there, I know shorting stocks is such a thing. Sure. Have, has there ever been a situation where there's been so much instability on the on the oil side that we've seen people betting against the oil companies? Has that started to happen yet you, in a real sense? I, I wouldn't suggest anyone to do that. Um, what we see a lot of is is really when it comes to the future price of oil, right? And so, you know, if you look at Alberta and sadly they require a fairly high price uh, spot price for oil. And so there are a lot of these like oil futures markets. So every single day there are people betting that the price of, of oil is going to fall. And I'm sure there are people with short positions when it comes to some of these status quo, uh, uh, you know, oil companies. That said, I, I would really, really caution any investor from taking a short position just because you don't know what's going to happen in the short term and you don't know how long it's going to take. Like I've now been doing this for 10 years, right? 10 years I've been counting these numbers. And I'm probably going to have to count them for another 10, 20 years before, you know. So really it's, it's you know, I, I take a more patient approach. Um, what we did see, probably the biggest signal there is the uh, world's largest sovereign wealth fund, which is the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund, uh, just announced, I think in the last couple of weeks, a massive divestment from fossil fuels. So I would say that we're continuing to see people uh, getting rid of their exposure and lowering that risk exposure. I haven't heard of too many people taking the opposite position of actually shorting those stocks. Well, that's great because I'm not only about 60% sure I even know what that means anyway. So thank you for not pointing that out, Tim. Uh, so Tim, uh, uh, I, I want to shotgun a few things here because I want to make sure we actually get through at least the, sure. the main points here. So just I'm going to group together um, the things that are very Give impactful. me one at a time. Give me one at a time. And nobody cares about, uh, which is energy efficiency. Sure. <laughs> so this is something that we've been seeing good progress on. We've been talking yeah. about for quite some time. As, as one of the best opportunities. Yeah. Are people starting to wake up to the just magnitude of the opportunities here? We're definitely seeing more investment. Is right. it picking up at, as fast as you would hope and as you expect it? No, this is like the no-brainer investment. Like yeah. everyone ought to be <laughs> retrofitting their homes and buildings and they're not really doing it as much as I'd like. Uh, we are getting some like nice, cool, sort of sexy, cool technologies. So like building envelopes and things like that. But honestly, this is, you know, we were talking about years ago. I remember Van Jones uh, suggesting for low-income communities to put down handguns and pick up cocktails guns, you know, and, and I'm just, I'm not seeing that in, in the way that we should have. And, you know, I, I heard a lot of momentum around that when energy prices were higher, but now that we're kind of back to this sort of more populist, like energy prices should be cheap. And, you know, Andrew Shearer talking about removing sales taxes from home heating, you know, that's just absolutely going to create a disincentive for those uh, energy efficiency measures. So it's happening. The smart people are doing it. Not everybody is so smart. <laughs> All right. So this is the one that I'm personally today, as I woke up today, the most interested in. Okay. I'll be honest with you, because as we've spoken about, and as the listeners know, I've started to wade myself into the world of tech, yes. big tech and all that stuff, life systems. So yeah. we're talking about e-learning. We're also talking about all sorts of high tech solutions and peer to peer things. Yeah. Tech. I, uh, you, yeah. you can almost call this the tech stuff. What is Google and <laughs> what are these companies yeah. doing? And, and, uh, you know, the audience is going to have a big hesitation there when right. you say, here's a whole bunch of money that rich people are investing in high tech stuff. <laughs> uh, can you either confirm yeah. or deny the fear on that 
concern on that sector? Sure. So there are going to be some questions there. Uh, you know, one of my favorite areas is peer-to-peer -peer lending. So instead of going to the bank, you know, can we have sort of community lending circles? Um, you know, there's always going to be uh, fears around uh, exploitation where really high interest loans, um, you know, loans for, for things that people probably shouldn't be loaning, uh, borrowing money for. Uh, that said, to me, it's all about disrupting the financial status quo. Uh, I'm just, I'm not a big fan of the bank. So anything that disrupts the banking sector, uh, I'm going to view with a favorable lens. <laughs> and, um, you know, I think we're right to, to have some some concerns and and to, to be able to look at it a little more closely. Um, but, you know, when I see a lot of fintech, it keeps a lot of money in people's pockets. And in my mind, more options are better. Right. So so really what I want, what I'm looking at there specifically with the peer to peer lending is is reducing the power of the, the big banks when it comes to accessing capital. So here's another one, which I have uh, so many feelings about. Sure. So green construction. Now, what's really interesting yeah. about this from a philosophical point of view is that, you know, we've spoken about this before, Tim, is that the, the sort of ongoing uh, thing in people's minds about the idea, just this very sorry, unspecific a uh, vague feeling of associating environment stuff with sort of like low tech or old sure. or going back to farms and stuff like that. Right. Uh, I would say, and please confirm or deny again your opinion, um, that within at least the building and construction and these types of sectors, high tech and eco-friendly are more and more being used interchangeably. This is an yeah. area where there's more acceptance that these are actually breaking leading edge high tech things you want. Yes and no. It's a mix. So farms are not very efficient, right? Like, you know, if you've been in a barn in a winter, you know that there's it's not a good uh, uh, a sort of source there. So this is a combination of the old and the new. A lot of older technologies, things like passive housing. So just like put your windows on the south side of your house and right, build it such that you're sort of protected from wind, you know, things like that. A uh, bit of a no brainer in, in a colder climate. Um, but at the same time, really realizing that there are huge gains to be made from just energy efficiency, right? You look at, uh, at HVAC systems, heating, ventilation, air conditioning. There used to be so much waste associated with those. Now we're getting a lot smarter about making them more efficient. Uh, better windows, um, you know, better thermostats, right? These, these smart, smart meters that, you know, just have the opportunity to save us so much money and so much uh, energy. So really, I would say that this is where it's a bit of a mix of the old and the new, Right. I think that, you know, it's interesting. We're going back to some like I'm seeing a lot of like wood construction. Mm -hmm. Right. And things like that where, uh, you know, and obviously we want to make sure that the wood is sustainably sourced. But oftentimes that that's just such lower impact than, you know, using something like concrete, which is just very energy intensive. So the good news there is that we're at least measuring these things mm -hmm. and we're at least getting the information. And that when it comes to green construction, it's now, again, a bit of a no brainer such that any new building that is going up should integrate uh, a lot of these, you know, very simple and very cost effective uh, green initiatives. Uh, Tim, I'm afraid as always, because both of us like to talk, um, we're out of time, but I want to ask you about, you're going to stick around, but where you have to go to the music yep. break. So I'm going to just ask you to maybe just in two sentences, maybe summary, uh -oh. if that's too much pressure, corporate green R&D, same question. Uh, <laughs> uh, lots, so, so much cool stuff. The vast majority of it right now is electric cars. Car companies have so much money to spend in R&D. And if I just look at like the car commercials that I'm seeing, uh, I don't think it's going to be too long before electric cars are just absolutely everywhere. 
All right. And we're, uh, we, of course, are one of our other favorite correspondents, Matthew Klippenstein from the West Coast, is uh, will be on shortly. I'm soon. Uh, I'm sure we speak to him every few months. As Don't well. let him challenge my title. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on to you, Matt. No, no. Every time he comes on, we call you. That way he, <laughs> you'll always be like 60 visits ahead, right? Perfect. He's pacing you. Okay. So we're going to go to Brian Adams. Please forgive me now. Um, and then when we come back, uh, I'm going to spend very little time talking uh, because Dave has lots more extremely well-written news for you. Uh, we'll be right back. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 9.5 FM. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. We are back. A little Brian Adams to get your morning or afternoon moving along here. Uh, we have about 16 minutes left for you, David. I apologize. Mm. So on that note, I'm just going to turn my mic off right now. Take it away, David. Well, uh, you might be turning it off too soon, Zaren, because I expect you to be popping off. Uh, Tim, I was wondering if we could just, um, <clears throat> if I could just ask you a couple points, uh, your opinion on just a couple things that Jason Kenny said at the Alberta Petroleum Show. Yeah, you, you don't I'm have to, You don't have to go to town on it. But uh, So he said global demand for oil and gas will grow through 2040. Yeah, so I, I need to look at the most recent estimates, but I do know that the IA, the International Energy Agency, has consistently uh, underestimated uh, the growth of renewables mm. and consistently overestimates the growth of demand. So this is one of these crystal ball scenarios where he's looking through his very rosy crystal ball <laughs> and seeing the things that he wants to see. Again, if just if electric cars and electric buses and you know the transportation sector alone goes through the shift that we think it's going to shift, uh, I would very much question those growth assumptions. Mm. Okay. And he says, uh, investor uncertainty through taxes and changing regulation has driven money out of the Albertan oil sector in favor of the oil sectors of other countries and he will be able to restore investor confidence in Albertan oil. Yeah, I don't think it's the investor confidence comes from government uncertainty. And certainly having a gov com government come in and then change the tax regime on carbon tax, mm. knowing that another government is going to then change it again, knowing that we're facing an election. Like, he's not really helping create a stable <laughs> tax environment when it comes to these things. But no, um, you know, investor confidence is much more, it's much less about sort of that, that uh, uh, government environment. And it's much more around... Uh, some of the bigger macro trends, understanding that, uh, uh, you know, the, the oil that is in Alberta is some of the dirtiest from a carbon perspective. It's also some of the most expensive and hardest to refine. So those are the issues that investors are a lot more concerned about. And then also when you see just, for example, there's like a huge uh, uh, deposit that was just found in the U.S. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's lots of oil in the market right now. And so, you know, certainly I think that investors are more concerned with other issues rather than like the, the tax structure mm -hmm. of, of, of the region. All right. Well, that sort of leads into the next one. Perhaps you've already answered it. But he uh, promised that by 2022, Alberta will have a business tax rate 45 percent lower than the next highest rate in Canada. Yeah, I mean, so this is like this is absurd. Like when you just think about it, I mean, we can compare it to Norway. I talked about the sovereign wealth one before. I mean, that's how you do sort of sustainable oil field development. You can look at Alaska, right, where every citizen gets a huge dividend check mm. every year from this. Uh, here in Canada, we've basically given our way our oil. Uh, with very low royalty payments, very low tax structures, really, you know, sort of, uh, uh, you know, more dependent on this boom-bust scenario. 
And um, and really, I just think that's poor long-term fiscal management for him to ta- uh, to, to cut taxes. You know, in in my mind, really, what uh, um, you know, what what government or what investors are looking for is sort of that long-term stability. Um, I think we, you know, we've now seen in the U.S. the tax cuts, you know, has blown up their deficit. This is a, you know, really to me a very silly. It's it's a talking point that I get conservatives like. They think that you know lower taxes equals you know more economic activity. I just don't see any evidence to really support that. Mm-hmm. And furthermore, if I can add to that, there's something which um, is a favorite is a favorite of conservative politicians, which is that they don't trust the markets at all. They have zero faith in markets and believe not a whiff in in actual capitalism because their first instinct is I have to put in government regulations to protect industries that I like. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Like it's the most on the face of it completely disingenuous point of view ever the other thing which is like more meta and we don't have time to get into philosophical conversation here but it's something i routinely bring up when people challenge me on this and in person or on social media as well which is that like the entire idea that um like the the market is going to do a thing no matter what and it's up to the the person who should be in charge is the person who can like use esp to sense it the best (laughs) as if who's got the best crystal ball uh, as if as if, and I and I think that Jason Kenny and and uh, uh, and uh, why am I blanking on a stupid name? Doug Ford. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Andrew Shear. Justin Trudeau. Oh, that guy. Justin Trudeau. Both don't seem to understand, but I think that Jason Kennedy does, uh, and is just being disingenuous. Whereas I think Justin Trudeau actually doesn't get it, um, <laughs> which is that you have an effect on policy, right? It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. If you put out, Canada's going to do this, Canada's going to do this, yeah, then the markets are going to respond to that, yeah. right? Jason Kenney does that disingenuously, knowing exactly what effect that's going to have, which is why we get the situation that I pointed out earlier, where he can say climate change is real from the speech, but his supporters, quote-unquote, read between the lines yep. and know that he's just saying that because he thinks he has to, A, and in, uh, and in uh, Justin Trudeau's case, he doesn't actually think that anyone is like he doesn't he isn't aware of the fact that he can change public opinion like it's this tool he yeah. just has that he doesn't want to use that's right. which is i believe theoretically i believe in climate change theoretically i want to do something about it but what am i supposed to do canadians don't agree with me so i guess i have to do do what the right wingers want yeah. as if he doesn't have the ability to change that maybe justin maybe people would believe it more if you acted like you believed it and the last thing uh, that Kenny said that I wanted to uh, point out was that the Albertan carbon tax was a dead weight on their economy. Right. Uh, okay. So that's a very specific term, a dead weight loss. Mm. Right. That's that's an economic term. And I mean, it's just it's just so silly. Like you know, you look at the the, the procedures that they went through in designing the carbon tax. Mm. It was specifically designed to you know uh, uh, exemptions were there to prevent you know the competitiveness and and industries from leaving. It was all, all these different things. like it's just it's the silliest argument. Um, but I mean, we're, we're in a post-fact world. We've been there for a while. <laughs> like we know this, that, that this is all about sort of politics and talking points there. Um, really it's, you know, when it comes to the carbon tax, we know that that is the most effective form of climate action. 
Um, what's interesting now is that, you know, there's been all this talk here in Ontario with Doug Ford and, and the message coming from, from Rod Phillips is that there are other ways to deal with climate change other than the carbon tax. Mm. But a study came out that showed that the initiative, the policies that they are using, which is this weird thing called a reverse auction, which I won't get into, but it's a horrible policy, is something like two to three times more expensive in terms of reducing a ton of CO2 rather than a straight carbon tax. Uh. So it's just we're in this really bizarre world where it was like, you know, for the longest time, these, the sort of middle of the road parties were like, okay, we can do regulations, which are more expensive, um, or we can do a carbon tax, which is market ba based, which is a little more efficient. We want to appease the conservatives ahead of time. So we're going to go for the market solution. And then now, because that's like an, an easy talking point for the conservatives to be against, and there's kind of this anger and this rage against the carbon tax, we now have these conservatives saying no to the more efficient market based policy. But we recognize we need to do something so we don't get called out as like a climate denier. So we're going to propose these less efficient regulations. Like it's just we're in such a bizarre world right now where really it just it, and it, it, it destroys my heart because we should really be having the conversation about what is an appropriate level of carbon tax. Mm. Right. We know and studies have shown that it has to be, you know, in the ballpark of about $100 per ton by about 2030 if we're going to have any chance of, of meeting our climate goals. So we should be debating this sort of how high should it be? And instead, we're just stuck, like, back from the Stéphane Dion election, <laughs> right, with the green shift of, like, should we or shouldn't we? Mm. And meanwhile, the rest of the world, I mean, it's, like I said, these policies aren't going to stop anything. They'll speed it up. They'll slow it down. They're not going to stop anything. But here we have the potential for, like, a two-year head start on the U.S. in terms of de developing a green economy, mm. right? And, and right now, I'm just, I'm really afraid that Canada is just going to do absolutely nothing that we're going to wait. The U.S. is going to move first. We know China's moving. We know all these other countries are moving. And then all of a sudden, we're going to end up in 10 years behind the curve again and without any of these jobs, without any of this economic development. So it's discouraging. Mm. It's funny how uh, the end of the political spectrum that likes to brand itself as the tough people are the first to concede when there's a bigger kid on the playground. What are we supposed to do? China's doing this. What, what are we supposed to yeah. do? My arms are behind my back. Yeah. It's it's just, it, you know, because I swim, uh, I spend a lot of my time in like the philosophical uh, space of politics, like just thinking yeah. about the bigger things. And you really don't have to spend much time up there in the clouds before you realize <laughs> that like... All politicians are full of it. That's not like that's a common we can we can pull out of it. <laughs> but like the right wing, the politician, I'm not talking about voters here. Voters, that's a different conversation. But the politicians are so disingenuous about what they want and what they're going to do. It's like you're saying like it's like, OK, well, my, I think my voters want this. And but they're concerned about, you know, the cost of stuff. So I'm going to create a policy that is against that and 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 market it as being cheaper when yeah. it isn't. Like it's it's so bold faced cynical. Yeah. And and what happened is that when Trump got elected, Doug Ford and everyone else on the right went, oh, we didn't think people were paying that little attention. We yeah. didn't think we could be that brazen. Yeah. Turns out we can't. Yeah. Uh, and then Doug Ford gave it a trial run here in Canada. Yeah, it turns out it works here too. Yeah. Nobody's paying attention to well, anything. But I mean So but that's my concern here yeah. is that the 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 quote unquote the left needs to just be aware I'm not advocating a particular strategy here, but whether you're a politician or you're a voter or you're an activist, you have to be aware, not only as 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 Tim said, that we're living in a post fact world, 
The other side doesn't care at all about the rules. And you need to adjust accordingly. I'm not telling you what you're... Pres- I'm not giving a prescription for action on that. But we need to wake up to the fact that they don't care. And I think there's... I would say there's like a fear trap and sort of an outrage trap that these are the things that get the most clicks when it comes to social media and art news articles. They're also the things that get people to the polls are mm-hmm. fear and outrage. So I don't think Doug Ford won. I don't think people voted for Doug Ford. I think they voted against Kathleen Wynne. Um, and I think that that really it's about understanding that when that we are being manipulated, which we sort of know this now, that that through fear, through outrage, um, that's that's how they're driving driving that interest. And when you are afraid and when you are outraged, that's when all rational thought goes out the window. So in my mind, it's really, you know, I think we need to take a deep breath and understand that to some degree we're getting played, I think, by all sides. And now we're starting to see it where, you know, the left is trying to make us afraid of Andrew Scheer. And it's just to me, you know, I don't know what the, the appropriate response there is, but I think we really need to, to start to rebel against the fear, against the outrage. And, you know, I'm really looking forward to a situation where instead of, uh, uh, you know, getting mad at what we're not doing, it's like, okay, well, what can I do? And what are governments, what are politicians that I can believe in? And I see these little glimmer of hopes with things like the Green Party starting to emerge. But that, you know, we're, we're just really, I feel like we're kind of stuck in this cycle of fear and outrage. Um, and that as a result, we're just, you know, we're making some really, really poor decisions. I think my final comment for the day would be is that I think a lot like I, I don't know about the, the higher ups, you're Justin Trudeau's and you're that sort of thing. But I think your rank and file, you know, uh, member of government who's on the left. I'm just keep using that word because I, I don't want to say the liberals specifically. Right. Um, I think they're, they I think a lot of them because, you know, I speak to some of these individuals and they're perfectly decent people. Right. And I think a lot of the time it's like I know what the right answer is or I know what the right policy is, but I don't know how to talk about it. Yeah. And because I don't know how to talk about it and I can't sell it, this is a liability, right? If you do something like that badly in politics, you're not, it's not just failing. You're actually harming yourself. And you can do serious damage. And this so, is the pedestal, yeah. you know, we kind of, with the hope, right? We sort of hold people up and then, you know, we just love, love it when people get torn down. So now everyone's afraid of sort of stepping up on that pedestal. Yeah. And so my, my final message for the show here, and then uh, we'll give the actual last word, to, uh, maybe just goodbye, but we'll give the actual last <laughs> word to David. Uh, my final thing was, hey, if you're a left-wing politician from any party, I don't care. And you have the right, you think you have the right ideas, but you're just afraid because you don't know how to sell them. Call me. <laughs> David, final words for you. Yes, I uh, I have no final word, but uh, we uh, we had a good time today. Thank you, Tim Nash, Lauren Latour, Saren Kaster. My name is David Hostetter. Stefan Hostetter was not uh, available today. He's out of town. That's okay. He'll come back soon. And uh, Saren, what do you got? Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> Oh, no, that's fine. All right, so we're yeah, we're going to time out. Um, I didn't want to. I didn't want to take your your read out. Your, your no, that's Green Week thing out. I didn't want to take that from you. No, that's true. And you know what? I, I jumped the gun anyway. So thank you for helping helping me kill forty seconds. All right. All right. Uh, so that's it. So have a good Green Week, everyone. We'll talk to you real soon. Thanks so much again, specifically to Tim. Always a pleasure to have him in the studio. You can check out Tim's uh, stuff on the website as well. We'll have links to Tim's website, his blog, where you can read the full Green Report. With that, the actual end of the show. Have a good yeah, Green yeah, Week, yeah, phone. Yeah, 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 have a good yeah, Green yeah, Week, everyone. Yeah, yeah. Take care. We'll see you real soon. <laughs>